0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: What scares me is the um, rise of authoritarianism across the world. There are now more authoritarian uh, countries or regimes than there are democratic ones. and you know and it's happening everywhere and even in democracies the you know leaders are becoming more authoritarian they're using the same authoritarian playbook it is harder for me to do my job now in a lot of countries than it was even 3 years ago 5 years ago
0: Welcome to the Adventure Podcast, and this episode with Katie Arnold. Katie is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and investigative journalist for Channel 4, BBC and Al Jazeera. She and I have been friends for a while now, and this episode has been recorded to coincide with the release of her latest film about the coup in Myanmar. In this episode, we talk about Katie's ascendancy into the world of investigative journalism and filmmaking, and how it all kind of happened by accident. We also explore some of her projects from over the years and discuss the ethics of human storytelling, the importance of bringing these issues to the fore, and the critical need for independent journalism. Okay, over to Katie Arnold. Let's start at the start. I think it would be really useful for you to introduce yourself, tell me who you are, what you do whatever that means, work professionally, personally, whatever. And I guess the backstory, how you got into what you do now.
1: Wow. Um, Okay. I am a, uh, I'm an investigative journalist and documentary filmmaker, and I shoot and direct films for mostly Channel 4, but also the BBC and Al Al Jazeera about uh, foreign current affairs and sort of human rights issues. Um. And the story about how I got here is quite a long one, um, I guess. I I think I knew at university that I wanted to do something that would continue my curiosity with the world. I was studying history and I was specialising in uh, modern African history and modern East Asian history. Um, and I didn't want that sort of uh, engagement with sort of world affairs to end just when I graduated. And I think it must have been around the time that I was in university that Unreported World on Channel 4 started. And I remember sort of watching it um, and just being enthralled by those documentaries and finding them so fascinating, such a, um, they were all such, you know, unique insights into various corners of the world. And so I think it was that programme that first made me think about journalism. Um, But I was also thinking about working in development. And so when I graduated, I did a quick ski season and then... um, applied for jobs in development and journalism and whichever one gave me a job first, I would just uh, do that. And thankfully, it was journalism because I don't think I'd enjoy working (laughs) in development. Um, And so I did a a short job at a documentary distributor working in archive research. And then I got a job at Sky News. And that job was literally the lowest of the low in the newsroom. It was a job called Ingest, where um, all the all the material that was coming into the newsroom whether it's interviews or footage from the field has to be recorded onto the server so that everyone in the newsroom can access it and my job was to literally hit record so it got onto the server and then label the footage and i did that for 2 years and it was a it was a 24 hour job so i used to have to do 4 weeks of days 2 weeks of night uh, two weeks of nights and all i was doing was just hitting record and labeling um, and I remember when I got the job, someone who, um, a, a filmmaker who I knew, uh, a lot older guy was like, this isn't the job you think it's going to be. You're not going to get to where you want to in this job. But I was determined that just being in the building would be better than being out of the building. And once I was in Sky News, you know, I could sort of work, work my way up. Um, and so whilst I was doing that job, I was also applying for sort of filmmaking competitions, pitching competitions, just anything that sort of gave me access to the kind of documentary world or filmmaking world. I knew that I wanted to shoot. Um, And amazingly, I won one of these youth um, pitching competitions. I pitched this story about uh, pregnant women in uh, Palestine or in West Bank, um, not being allowed to access the hospitals in East Jerusalem. Um, And I won. And so I got a thousand pounds to go make the film. So I just bought a camera um, just a little DSLR, watched YouTube videos um, to learn how to shoot and then just took myself off to the West Bank and made this film. Um, and it was probably one of the sort of best stories that I've come up with, but it was a terrible film. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was a, an incredible experience um, really sort of, uh, you know, inspired me and it made me even more sure about what it was I wanted to do um, moving forward with my career um, and I came back and I, you know, was talking to people in the newsroom about that and I was applying for more competitions. I managed to get onto an EU program to do some a journalism program for a couple of weeks in Morocco um, and made a couple of sort of also very bad short films there. <laughs> um and I didn't really get further in Sky News. That guy, that guy was correct. Um I did make it to guest producer, which is a equally sort of <laughs> not very enjoyable job where you just have to like cold cool people being like, can you come on the program? Um but I applied for the Channel 4 investigative journalism training program, um, which would which was a sort of six-month program where you work on dispatches but also do a number of courses. And uh, amazingly I got through that they I think because they watched my films and decided that maybe I had the initiative to do uh, you know have a job in sort of documentary and have the initiative for investigative journalism and so I did that program and that was really where my career sort of went up a level and that I really started on the path that I am on now and do you want me to continue yeah <laughs> okay um so I did that which was great worked on three films for dispatches I then went to Channel 4 News but all of those films were domestic uh stories Uh, So I did two on universal credit, one on uh, diesel cars Uh, and I'm not a petrol head. Um, But I knew that I wanted to do foreign current affairs and it was always this, you know, in a newsroom, I feel like you'd have to work there for ages to get one of those few jobs on the foreign desk or, you know, in the field. Um, And I was sort of impatient and also in my late 20s when I just wanted to go spend a bit of time abroad. You know, whilst I was young, I wanted to go live in another country and really sort of immerse myself in another uh, culture and really get to know another part of the world um, quite intimately. And so I somehow homed in on Myanmar, you know, I think I was 26 or 27 I quit my job at Channel 4 News and uh, just took myself off to Myanmar and freelanced from there for three years. Um, And that's kind of I think that was then, you know, the the Channel 4 program was a huge moment in my career, which really sort of set it on the path I'm on now. But then uh, those three years in, in Myanmar were also hugely formative. Um, and uh, yeah, an incredible experience.
0: And I'll let you ask a question now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, did you did you travel much when you were a kid?
1: Um, no, not really at all. Uh, as a family, we we never really went beyond sort of we France. We skied a lot, and I went on perhaps the odd sailing holiday in uh, the Mediterranean. But no, we didn't travel much. Um, on my gap year, I you know I did the gap year. And uh, went to South America and that sort of gave me that, um, you know, the love for sort of travel and, okay. you know, that curiosity. I did have a very um, strange experience as a kid, though, because um, we grew up uh, in Suffolk, not very far from it. <laughs> you and I are recording this now. And um, we lived in the middle of nowhere. It was literally just cornfields and then two houses. And um, when I was very young, this, these new neighbours moved in next door. And, um, they brought with them a domestic worker from Cambodia and she wasn't treated very well. Um, you know, she wasn't paid very much money, like hardly any money at all. And my mum, um, was incredible and sort of started to speak to her over the, over the fence and started to realise what was going on. And so she insisted that she was going to teach, uh, this lady how to speak English. And so she, um, when I was growing up, she was almost a permanent feature in our house, and she was just this incredible woman. Um, but she obviously lived through uh, Pol Pot and through that genocide, and so from a very young age, I was sort of very aware of these kind of these words and these sort of human rights atrocities. Even if I didn't quite understand the kind of gravity of them, I remember being at school and people being like, "Can you uh, name a country beginning with C?" Thinking that you're going to say Canada. And I was like, Cambodia, and they have a, had a leader called Pol Pot. Um, and I think that that also was probably quite a formative um, experience, just having that sort of access to her and learning about Cambodian history and learning about her experience in such a kind of uh, personal way with someone that I was really close to.
0: Yeah, it gets philosophical quick, but like I often, you know, sit here and have these conversations and kind of, I try to work out what the trigger point was where mm. somebody, it defined, but... You know, that's such a unique experience. And, the, you know, the butterfly effect of, well, what's the chance that yeah. that happened? Yeah. You know, and it's it's formed arguably who you are and what you've done. And-
1: well, maybe or maybe that was just me, you know, reading into something and it didn't have any impact yeah, yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. Because it definitely, it wasn't like I was immediately set on being a journalist or set on a career that involved um, a lot of travel. I wanted to be a lawyer for a long time just because the type of education that I got sort of pushed me down that path. Yeah, And it was actually only when I did my gap year that I was like, God, I do not want to be a lawyer. That would be a terrible idea. But so when you... Apologies to all lawyers who are listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you love it.
0: Um, But then going to the West Bank, you know, you obviously, you, you go and sit in the newsroom and you do all of that and you apply to this film um, fund or grant scheme, you get it but suddenly you're on a plane you know no mentor no minder no older person to look after you how was that
1: um i don't think i really thought about it like that i didn't think oh god i don't i don't think i was particularly nervous or particularly worried i was just excited um and maybe i had a slightly um you know i was a bit too confident in my own abilities and so you know my my parents were probably like you're going where have you thought about your you know safety? have you thought about the problems I was like it's fine, it's fine, you know the world's a uh, the majority of people are lovely um yeah i I don't think i would I was particularly phased by it. I just sort of was really uh determined and knew that I, what I wanted to do and i had I did have contacts obviously I'd already set up the story to a degree, so I wasn't just going in completely blind um and I did actually have a mentor but that was more for the storytelling side of it um yeah
0: well that's really interesting because i was going to say you you, you know are formally technically untrained as a journalist in mm. that sense and so you just arrive in the west bank with an idea mm. and off you go you know who should i ask questions and as we both know actually there is some risk to that it's never that simple you ask mm. the wrong questions to the wrong person you can be in trouble how did you do what you ended up doing what was the process
1: on that when you were there yeah um i mean it was it was fairly well set up i suppose so i had already contacted organizations out there and talked to them about the topic and um and i'd found oh no i found the characters when i was out there but you know i met with them first and explained what it was i was wanting to do and the type of access i wanted to have to them um i don't know i think i just sort of fumbled my way along and did what felt right um and whilst it was a I and mean, it wasn't as sensitive a story, it's not like I had to consider, you know, re-traumatising people necessarily or some of those other issues that come with uh interviewing people in uh sensitive areas and interviewing people of sort of human rights abuses. It was, you know, I was sort of following these women. But no, I mean I was inexperienced, I didn't know what I was doing. Um and I was just trying to make it up as I went along. Um and I guess I'd watched a lot of Programs, a lot of unreported worlds um, and was just trying to emulate that very poorly um, there was so because I was at Sky News at the time I did contact the um, Jerusalem Bureau for Sky News and the correspondent out there at the time was this guy called Sam Kiley He's now, I think, CNN's um, sort of chief, one of their chief foreign correspondents. But he was amazing. He was, I went up and met met, met up with him and he took me out for one day, like following him in the field. And, um, you know, he gave me a few tips. So it was good to know that there was always someone as well nearby who I could sort of call upon. Um, yeah.
0: And did you, I don't know if I put words in your mouth, but what did that experience of being there do to you in terms of affirmation or worry or? about the rest of your life and your career and what you wanted to do?
1: Um, I think that it was such an incredible experience. I met so many amazing people, so many amazing uh, Palestinians, and I felt so privileged to have an uh, insight into their life, but also just learn more about them. Um, and I just knew that that is what I wanted to do from from then on out in my career and that I was going to do whatever I could to try and make that happen. Um yeah, it was just a really sort of inspiring experience.
0: And when I asked this, I'd ask it very kindly, you know, I'm on your team, but how much of it was personal ambition, personal enjoyment, and the that kind of mystery-solving intrigue versus these stories need telling because we need to fix things or change things or we need to be aware?
1: Uh, definitely a, a mix of, mix of both. Um, yes, like I knew what I wanted to achieve in my career and that this was a – a stepping stone to achieving that and a learning experience that would help me. But I was also, um, and you know, still am really motivated by, um, exposing sort of human rights issues. Um, at that time, I was so hooked on the sort of Palestinian cause. And I know that's actually a really bad thing to say as a journalist, because one must be sort of objective, But I was so sort of obsessed with it and reading loads about sort of the history and um, really engaged that I wanted to go out there and make a film that exposed what was happening to women out there. It was, my motivation was just as much about the story as it was about my own um, experience. Um, And actually, the same guy that told me that you're not going to get very far at Sky News also told me that you will... He sort of advised against focusing on the West Bank for that reason, that it's hard to be objective and that that's something that could plague you in your future as a sort of investigative journalist and I think he was possibly right on that.
0: Did you succeed in being objective?
1: Um no. Well, no, I don't think I did. I suppose um I mean it was a character it was a character driven film, so I was following two sisters who were both pregnant at the same time um one of whom was given permission to give birth in East Jerusalem, which meant crossing through checkpoints, and the other one wasn't. So he had to move to Hebron and give birth down there in a different hospital away from where she lived. So it was a you know it was a character driven film. It wasn't an analytical or current affairs film where I'm sort of trying to interrogate the subject in a, you know, and get opinions on, on both sides. But at the same time, you know, you still have to be conscious. Even with those films, you still have to be sort of fair. And I suppose I didn't give uh, the Israeli side a, a right to apply um, or re- perhaps reflect what happens to Israeli women. But I also don't think that that's relevant. I don't think reflecting what happens to as in Israeli women in hospitals is relevant because they don't have the same uh, challenges.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's it. You're, you, you, know, you and I know each other, so you're very welcome to disagree with me and I kind of hope you do in some ways. But why do we need to always be objective?
1: Um, well, I do think being objective is really, really, (laughs) really important right now in media. Well, I think you must, you do have to be um, objective as a journalist. I think it's fundamental. Um, but I think now more than ever, when the mainstream media or, you know, Channel 4, BBC are being criticised by um, the left, the right, you know, there's a sort of culture war and the media and journalism is at the centre of it. And our integrity as journalists and our objectivity is paramount to making sure that people remain, you know, still have trust in us. Um, And if you want your films or your work, your journalism to have genuine impact, I mean, that's what we want to achieve with any sort of investigative or current affairs film. You know, you want people to watch it and hopefully to somehow enact change, whether that's at the sort of political level or even um, sort of, you know, just on a uh, human level with the sort of general audience. And I think that if it's a campaign film or if you are not objective, if you're not saying these are the facts and this is what's happening, I think you're less likely to 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 achieve that. Um, and also, again, you know, it's, it's sort of more like the first point. If you are... Subjective, then you are opening yourself up to uh, complaints from you know the the other side. For example, um, a subject I am sure we're going to come on to, I've recently been working on a documentary about war crimes and human rights. Sorry, alleged war crimes and uh, and human rights abuses in Myanmar following the coup last year. And if we were just subjective and we weren't interrogating the facts. Um, fully then it would be very easy for the military let's say to to sort of discredit us and then all of our work has basically been uh, undermined whereas we've laid down very clearly here are the facts we have the visual evidence we have the testimony those are then undeniable they can try and deny it but it's very difficult when you have that evidence and so you have a stronger case than if you just went tried to pull on people's heartstrings in a really subjective way
0: but it gets far too deep and i really want to go there maybe we should just do it but but it's still personal and it's about what you personally believe you know one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist and you know i think i often think poachings are a good example of this you know nobody wants to see elephants die and you can talk about the chinese and the ivory trade and all that but actually you look at who are the poachers well often they're just being offered some cash Mm. now if you withhold withholding information is not the same as lying so to create a fully objective poaching documentary, you'd have to go and meet the poachers, surely, mm-hmm. to hear their mm-hmm. side. But we don't do that. Does that remove the purpose and power and truth from those documentaries? Or or are we trying as filmmakers, documentary makers, storytellers, journalists to prove a point because it matters to us?
1: Well, I mean, there's obviously different types of filmmakers who try and do different things. Um, I work in current affairs, which I suppose is a form of It is a form of journalism, but there's, you know, documentaries that aren't necessarily in that sphere and so can try and prove a point and will have a thesis that they're trying to prove. And that's not a, you know, that's fine. But I work in current affairs. I work in a form of journalism, which is which is different. But you can, you know, you can follow a freedom fighter and you can follow their really uh, compelling arc you can be there with them in a really sort of intimate way and the audience will come up with their own judgment on them. And you may hope that that's a sympathetic one, um, but it's not up to you to try and manipulate how they feel about them. If you've, if there is a good character who is on, you know, doing something because they really believe in it or, you know, whatever, the audience will come make that judgment on their own. They don't need you. And if there is a, you know, the poachers, for example, like let them put it in their own words. And again, let the audience decide. You know, they might give a really compelling argument as to why they have to do it. And that's not like, that's neither a good or a bad thing. Like there's no, I think some films try to interrogate a subject that is, um, Related to current affairs, you know, to issues that are ongoing now. And I think that they try and do it in a way that pits good versus evil. And they will focus on a character, um, you know, they'll have the protagonist, and they will make them out to be a hero. Um, and then obviously whoever's on the other side is is obviously the is, you know, the antagonist. And I don't think there are many situations where someone is 100% good and the other person is 100% evil. And I think that it's in some ways irresponsible to try and um, present, uh, you know, issues that are going on right now in that way. Um, And I don't think that it's sort of helpful for that, for, for whatever that subject is either.
0: But to deliberately challenge you, do you not, I'll give you some, well, this is my opinion, I'll deliberately be challenging. I think that people need an access point though those who aren't necessarily interested let's take poaching because it's an easy example who aren't engaged in that subject matter they're not going to read big books about it they're not going to want to watch let's say kind of laborious investigative pieces about it they want a bit of drama and a netflix special and the good versus evil which suits the kind of dramatic filmmaking narrative it acts as an access point that brings someone into a subject matter that they then might go on to read more about or watch more about you know if we create narrative vehicles for people to become engaged with the subject well
1: firstly I don't think all documentaries that uh, present both sides or are um, objective are you know sort of analytical kind of intense heavy documentaries you can have very compelling character driven films um, which achieve all the things that you've just mentioned which will suit a Netflix audience but that just aren't painting people in a very sort of one-dimensional way
0: yeah it's the Um, polarization isn't
1: it yeah and you know i'm sure the anti-poaching activist probably is a uh 95 good person um and maybe there you don't show the sort of nuance well you should show the nuance and depth to their personality because that's how the audience are going to relate to them and to get invested in their story um and how they will then get more invested in the topic but by then presenting the other side, let's say the and to use your example, the yeah. the poachers as you know the embodiment of evil and not present some of the socioeconomic factors that um, may push them into doing that is 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 un, is irresponsible and unhelpful and not fair to them. It might make for a more dramatic story, but it's not true and i don't think that it's yeah i'm i don't sort of agree with it but yeah. you, but it doesn't but like i said i don't think that you have to do that in order to make a really uh strong film that then you know invests people into that topic yeah you can do both you can achieve both you can make a really compelling film and still be uh objective and still be true to to the people involved in it on both sides
0: and I suppose this all feeds into the issue with the way that we consume meat, uh, the issues around the way we consume media now, which is we want quick hit, instant, lots of drama, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And it's a problem. I mean, maybe this is trying to connect this too much to politics, but it's a problem across kind of society at the moment. I suppose it's the social media effect that people really feel that they have to be in one camp or the other whether it's on politics or on other aspects of sort of culture wars or whatever, um, you know, you're either on our side or you're not. And so it's like we're right, they're wrong, we're good, they're bad. And it's just not, you know, it's not the reality on the ground, is it?
0: Do you, Have you had many moments then where you've gone out knowing, and I knowing with my inverted commas in the air, what the story is? And actually it turns out to be something radically different or the character you were looking for is not the person you thought they might be.
1: Yeah, definitely. There have been people that have not met the expectations that we had of them before we went out. Um, and I think I've definitely learned that you you just have to go with the flow is, that it is, is the wrong way of phrasing it, but not have expectations. And you just have to be true and follow them and see how their lives unfolds and reflect that, and reflect that honestly. And it makes for, I think it makes for better films. You know, everyone is complex you know everyone has their you know their motivations or their problems or whatever and i think that by reflecting that you are you know you make people relate with them more rather than you know setting them out on a very specific superficial or um you know straight path
0: but you clearly have a very kind of powerful moral and ethical code that governs what you do that's mm. obvious do you ever Or have you ever had experiences, maybe you haven't, where you kind of think, oh, oh no, I've found this out or that out and it doesn't help the story that I'm trying to tell. Or, you know, are you 100 percent true to that moral and ethical code of we say what we see?
1: Um, No. So it depends how relevant it is to the story we're trying to tell. If that information is totally relevant to the story And our characters' relationship to the topic or issue, story, whatever, then no, I would not withhold that information. Um, And you have to sort of weave it in somehow. If you find stuff out about them, and I think this has happened, you find some stuff out about them, and you're like, "Well, that's not, you know, it's not great or it's not ideal, but it's actually not relevant to the story that we're trying to tell." Then I guess, yeah, we we I have left stuff like that out because it's just not. It maybe it's a kind of uh, what's the word, like a um, a mark on their personality. Yeah. But it might not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't affect the story. And so,
0: yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because we do, you know, whether it's a three-minute piece, 30 or a 10-part special, you have to leave most of it out.
1: Mm, yeah, that's the other thing. You don't always have time. But but if it is, if it is relevant and fundamental to the topic you're interrogating, then yes, you'd have to put it in.
0: So let's let's go back to the chronological. So when you made the decision to go and live overseas, mm. why did you feel the need to go and live somewhere rather than just find the interesting stories in the UK and travel to wherever the story was? Why did you need to embed?
1: Um, so for a number of reasons. Obviously, if you are a journalist and you're embedded somewhere, you just know the country so much better. Um, and I wanted to have that type of relationship with a with a country where I really felt like I knew. And obviously I'm I'm never going to be an expert and it's not my country and I will never understand it fully. But that type of journalism is better than parachute journalism. Um, parachute journalism is sometimes, you know, needed. You know, if there's like some sort of disaster, um, you need to just sort of be able to go in there and show what's happening. But I was wanting to do more in-depth journalism about about Myanmar and being there and, you know, having Myanmar friends and just sort of understanding the country is obviously just a million times better. Also the country, well, there was also obviously the personal reasons that I was, you know, 26 years old and I just had that kind of wanderlust where, you know, I was at a point in my life where I wanted to go have a very different experience for a decent amount of time. Um, You know, not just go sort of, backpacking for three months but really have an experience that was just completely new really immerse myself somewhere different um so there was that sort of personal motivation as well um but then Myanmar was just this fascinating place I mean it still is uh at the time so this was 2015 um I'd actually been planning to move there for a couple of years beforehand but because I got on that Channel 4 program you know it all got delayed But the country had obviously been locked away for for decades under military rule and, you know, very little was known about it. People weren't really allowed in. Journalists definitely weren't allowed in and tourists were only allowed in, you know, a few of them and you had to do a very specific kind of uh, tour. So it was this, you know, it's a fascinating place. The politics is just, you know, is, is just mad. The fact that it was under a dictatorship like that for so long and that it was emerging... Really suddenly, you know, the military just decided uh, that they were going to uh, open the country up to, uh, well, they were going to sort of experiment with democracy or a form of democracy. And so it just suddenly opened up um, and it was going through these rapid, uh, rapid changes. There was obviously the whole story about Aung San Suu Kyi um there were loads of issues you know social issues and uh, sort of smaller human rights issues that existed due to its sort of history of military rule it was, it was just you know an, an incredible place and a, a good opportunity i suppose for me as well and yeah as a as a journalist as well as a as someone wanting to do foreign journalism and this is something that i sort of speak to i i sometimes do um lectures about how to set yourself up in foreign journalism um there are parts of the world where there are uh, a million foreign journalists already. You know, there are sort of hubs, uh, you know, you know, Kenya for East Africa, Lebanon, sort of until recently, um, Bangkok and going there is a very competitive market for a younger journalist who doesn't have all of the sort of contacts or, or is freelance and doesn't have someone, um, you know, who's going to take all of your stories. Uh, Myanmar, because journalists had not been allowed there until I think sort of roughly 2012, I guess, or 2011, 2012, it didn't have, uh, you know, loads of journalists there already. So it was a, a slightly less competitive market. But then at the same time, a country that was going through probably more changes than a lot of other places and then the reason of course that i went in 2015 is because in november that year there was going to be the first free and fair election in 25 years although um the the one 25 years ago was um made none and void so that one doesn't really count and so there was this huge event which the whole the whole world was interested in like every editor every news organization in the world was watching myanmar at that election so as someone who didn't have loads of contacts, I did have a few and I did make sure that I set up some contacts in advance with editors who would take my work. But, you know, I didn't have loads. It, at least there was this big story that was coming up that, you know, that they would be interested in. Yeah. And so that's how I how I ended up there. I mean, Myanmar itself, like I, you know, like I said, I did do East Asian history and I did modern African history. But Myanmar wasn't a subject that uh, Myanmar wasn't a country that was always on my radar. but ironically um, based on what I think of Aung San Suu Kyi now, um, it was her release and the sudden sort of uh, attention around Myanmar then that, that sparked my interest that made me start reading a lot more about Myanmar and then just really um, sort of piqued my interest and, and made me want to uh, to go there and sort of see it for myself.
0: And before we get into, you know, the film you've just made and the story that you are telling, I was about to say want to tell, but it's the story you're telling, um, which is different.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, What was your life like there?
1: Oh, it was, it was, well, I went there, I was there for this fascinating three years. I was there just before the election when there was still a lot of uh, trepidation about what would happen. There was a lot of uh, optimism. But still, no one really knew what would happen because Aung San Suu Kyi's party and Aung San Suu Kyi, I'm sure all your audience know, but she is the democracy icon who for uh, decades lived under house arrest and was uh, campaigning for civilian rule and for democracy um, in Myanmar. Uh, And she she's the daughter of the independence hero, General Aung San, who um, fought for independence against the Japanese and the British. And then, yes, when she, you know, she in 1988 came onto the scene um, and since then has been the uh, hero fighting for democracy. Um, And so everyone knew she was going to win, but no one really knew what the military would do, as you know, in reaction to that. There was a lot of, there was fear, not a lot of fear, but there was definitely a fear that they would not accept the results and that they would just... uh, you know, they would seize control in a coup, which um, they did at the last election. And as it would turn out, they would do at the next one. Um, but as soon as the election happened and, you know, she she came to power and she, she wasn't allowed to be president, but she um, assumed this position of state councillor, which was, um, as she put it, higher than the president. There was this sort of optimism and the country was on a positive trajectory. Um, and so it was quite a, it was a really... Um, like an inspiring place to be living. Like yes, there are a lot of issues. There's a lot of ethnic conflict, a lot of civil war along the country's borders. Um, the military was still committing uh, human rights abuses in those areas. There was lots of residual problems from uh, the decades under military rule. You know, I did stories about sort of the trafficking of girls to um, to China and the Middle East to work as domestic um, servants. Uh, and, but yeah, but the country was 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 advancing and there was, you know, more investment coming in. So it was quite, it was an exciting, dynamic place to live. And on top of that, Yangon is just one of the best cities in the world. I absolutely love it. It is really beautiful. It's got amazing architecture. It's so, it's just buzzing with life. Really colourful, like the smells, the sounds, like everything about it is just so, so invigorating. And the people are just wonderful, like... So, so lovely. You can just sort of chat to everyone. It's totally safe for at least for a foreigner living there. Like totally safe. I didn't have any problem. People would like hardly even lock their houses, which is sort of obviously tied to its kind of Buddhist, Buddhist culture. And there were lots of other um, expats there as well. Like loads of people went in there from lots of different industries um, because it was this frontier market and it was growing and expanding. So it was just a really like fun, exciting and interesting place to be. And I felt very privileged to see the country before the election and then see it sort of, you know, move into democracy and to be advancing in that way. But then in 2017, there was the Rohingya genocide. And I mean, that just, it didn't change necessarily my experience in Myanmar. There was more uh, suspicion of foreigners um, because the the military and Aung San Suu Kyi and these um, Buddhist nationalists who were very powerful there were blaming the international community, said that they were supporting the Rohingya who were terrorists, Um, And obviously there was a lot of chat about how the international media were just siding with them and, um, you know, just criticising Myanmar. And so there was more suspicion and there was slightly more tension, but it didn't fundamentally change my experience of living there. But I went to Bangladesh where all of these Rohingya were were pouring across the border because we were journalists were banned from entering Rakhine State, where the Rohingya live and where this... um, where all the violence was happening. So we couldn't sort of report from it from there, but we could go to Bangladesh. And I went there very soon after it all, all the violence started. And I saw, like, every day it felt like another 100,000 people had crossed the border. Like, I cannot describe the numbers of, of people who were traumatised, who had been through in, immense suffering, who had picked up their lives and were having to set up lives in a really sort of... Miserable corner of the world, miserable just because there was, you know, there was no space. They were having to chop down trees to try find find um, spaces to set up their little tarpaulin camps. Um, it was monsoon. There were no latrines. So people were just like defecating where they were about to start sleeping. It was just, you know, it was just miserable. Having reported on that and I reported on it for a while, it changed, obviously, my perception of Myanmar, and changed my experience I guess not sort of on the ground but just my kind of own you know feelings towards it I suppose I mean that being said I still you know I'm still very um involved and been reporting on it still ever since but it just was it was just slightly different
0: and what happened next
1: <laughs> what politically or <laughs> with, no, with,
0: with the film and what you've done now
1: oh right um so last year uh, 2021, well, in 2020, at the end of 2020, there was another election and Aung San Suu Kyi, again, won by a huge, huge majority. She actually um, extended her majority, which meant that she'd have slightly more uh, control in parliament. Um, it's worth saying that throughout all of this, the military still had a lot of control in the country. They, um, they designed the constitution that was only created in 2008 in a way that protected their power. Um, so in Parliament, twenty five percent of seats are, are reserved for the military, um, and they have control of three key, key three key ministries. So the threshold for the civilian parties in order to get control or you know over fifty percent of power in in the Parliament is obviously a lot higher because the military already have twenty five percent twenty five percent, and they have their own um, political party but she managed to win by even a bigger majority than she did in 2015 and the military called foul. you know you've said there'd been election fraud and on the day that the new parliament was first um, meant to sit on the uh, February 1st they uh, seized control in a coup and since then the country has just descended into a really brutal civil war and it's and I, when whenever people ask me you know what's going on there and i say it's civil war people are always really surprised They're like well, I have no no idea that that's what's going on but it's you know it doesn't get much attention but it is as horrible as what's going on in ukraine you know everything that we see there you see in in myanmar like airstrikes on civilian villages massacres you know it's it's awful and it and it the trajectory of it has also been really tragic that um, millions of people came out to protest against the coup. Millions. Um, it's one of the biggest pro-democracy movements ever seen. And amazingly, I did this interview with one of the generals recently um, over Zoom because they would, they haven't let me back into the country since um, I left in 2018. But um, we asked him about these uh, protests and he was like, well... We've done our calculations and at their peak, there are only 10 million people protesting at one time. And so actually that's only, uh, that's only one fifth of the country. He may have even said 20 million, I can't remember now, but it was like, that is a huge amount of people. Um, All of these people went out to protest and the military, as everyone predicted, just started to crack down and they just opened fire on these um, unarmed civilians who were just calling for democracy. And there are you know horrific examples of those mass shootings. And actually in the film that is coming out soon, we investigate one of those mass shootings, the first mass shooting um, to happen in a uh, district of Yangon called North Oclapa. And this then continued over a number of uh, weeks and sort of months. And eventually all of these, it obviously did suppress the protest movement, but all of these young people in particular witnessed such atrocities. So they had so much trauma from what they had seen, you know, their friends just being sort of gunned down, uh, that a lot of them have fled to the border areas of Myanmar, where which are held by ethnic armed groups that have sort of a degree of um, independence and control over their own territories. And they are now forming their own, Uh, Or have formed their own uh, sort of militias, uh, paramilitary sort of militias that are fighting a guerrilla war against the army. And the army, in order to try and suppress that um, guerrilla movement, are just being, are just using sort of indiscriminate violence against against anyone, against obviously the the militias, um, but also against civilians. You know, if there's strong uh, if there's a strong militia, they're they're called PDFs in the in the country, uh, People's Defense Forces. If there's PDF activity in an area, they will massacre uh, civilians as a sort of form of collective punishment to try and get the PDFs to you know to stop. Which obviously doesn't work. It just makes people even more emboldened to try and uh, get rid of them and eradicate them as a source of as this you know as the um, government or regime in Myanmar. And so that's where Myanmar is now. There's just this um, this sort of civil war, but it's not kind of, you know, as it's not a sort of trench warfare. It's not sort of here's like the front and this is where they're fighting over territory. These PDFs are everywhere, like communities across the country, have formed their own PDFs. Some of them, you know, have trained in the ethnic areas. Some of them are just forming in areas that are under government, fully under government control, or fully under military control. Um, sorry, I shouldn't say government because we don't want to legitimise them. Since there's been a coup, but um, they're everywhere, and they're just fighting to protect their own areas and fighting on these very sort of local fronts, and that's happening across the country. So it's, I mean, it's it's tragic, but it's I mean, it is tragic. But in some ways, I mean, the resilience of the people to try and eradicate this military institution that has terrorised them for, for decades is also just quite incredible.
0: So what do you think is going to happen?
1: <laughs> I mean, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, it's, really, it's, it's really fascinating. So the military are actually under a lot of pressure. So they are armed by China and Russia you know they are a well equipped and and large army as well the pdfs the people are very poorly armed um there are quite a lot of guns on the kind of black market in myanmar because there are all these sort of small ethnic conflicts along the border areas so they do have weapons but like nothing like the myanmar military and the military also have um air power they have uh russian made planes and helicopter gunships that they are using to uh, try and sort of destroy the areas where there's a lot of resistance. But the people, the People's Defence Forces, are making a lot of kind of gains. They are killing a lot of soldiers. Um, They have wrested control from uh, the military in a a lot of areas, not just areas close to the ethnic groups, but also in areas that have never had a history of um, sort of, you know, resistance before and the fact that the military is trying to suppress all of these groups across the whole country means that they're they're sort of overstretched so they are under a lot of pressure they do not have control over the country and i do not think that they are going to uh, regain control over the country so the question is what are they what do they do about that do they just try does this go on for a long time and just become a war of attrition where both sides are constantly losing a lot of people Do the military have the ability to recruit enough numbers in order to have that type of war? Possibly not because their recruitment numbers are are, are really poor at the moment because obviously a lot of people don't want to join. Um, So there could be an internal coup within the military where they try and get rid of the senior general On online who was the sort of, you know, the guy that came up with the whole coup in order to protect his own um, position and power. Uh, maybe they try to get rid of him and then say, we're we're different now and try and negotiate. There is some people are talking at the moment about whether they might release Aung San Suu Kyi, who's been held in a prison and who's been given this uh, huge slate of charges. I mean, ridiculous charges. Um just the other, just the other day, the um, spokesperson, Tun said, you know, there is, you know, there's a possibility that they might ne- negotiate. They're not saying that they will, but there's a possibility they would negotiate with Aung San Suu Kyi and the Chinese are sort of pushing for negotiations as well. So maybe, maybe they do release her and then try and go back to that kind of uh, agreement between the civilian Aung San Suu Kyi, her party and civilian rulers and and, and the military and go back to the, The status quo that they had before, but the PDFs that are fighting in these, you know, they're not going to accept that. The ones that I've filmed with, the ones that I've spoken to, they're not going to accept that. They are not going to go back to a a situation where the military still hold on to some degree of power, which is, you know, admirable. And I, you know, can totally understand why they feel that way. But that means I don't know, I don't know what the the end goal is. I mean, it's a lot more fighting and a lot more violence um i think
0: there's so much i want to talk to you about but it's the time is the issue but um i suppose people can watch the film i guess i was gonna ask you that question i didn't even mean to do that as a promo but um
1: yeah please do watch the film because we uh we investigate uh three potential war crimes uh in in a lot of detail we look into one massacre where we've managed to find the only eyewitnesses that can unfold exactly what happened. We've gathered all of this um, visual evidence of that first mass shooting that I referenced to be able to build a really accurate timeline of um, visual timeline of what happened. Um, and I said we look into these airstrikes on civilian areas, but we also follow the young people who from there, you know, from when then they were peaceful protesters, we have stuck with some of them from the beginning to to watch that transition. Um of these young people who feel they have no other choice but to pick up arms and try and defeat this, you know, really powerful army uh, by themselves.
0: Yeah. When's it out?
1: It's going out on Monday, the 25th of July, at 11.05pm on Channel 4 Dispatches. It's called Myanmar, The Forgotten Revolution, and it will also be on all four afterwards.
0: Oh, let's talk really quickly. We really don't have any time, but... Can we talk about Channel 4? We can absolutely talk about Channel 4. I don't even need to ask you a question. What's going on? What blah, blah, blah. Hit me. Uh,
1: The, um, I mean, it's not even a threat to privatise. The uh, announcement that the government are wanting to privatise Channel 4 is an absolute travesty. um, And it is purely ideological. Ideological. Um, the reasons that they put forward for wanting to privatise are proof in itself that this is a purely ideological move to try and curtail independent media um, and in particular independent journalism. Uh, channel 4 is a publicly owned but not publicly funded channel. All of its revenue comes from um, advertising and all of it is pumped back into the programmes. Because it is a public service broadcaster, it uh, gets... All of its content from independent production companies in the UK. The independent production company industry in the UK basically survives off Channel Four because it has that, um, because of that that model. Um, so I think there was a survey that said that independent production companies. I think the majority of them make more than fifty percent of their um, content for Channel Four because obviously ITV and BBC make a lot of their stuff in house. The Government says, "Well, we have to privatize it because it's not financially viable, uh, which is completely wrong. Uh, they basing the figures that they pump out to try and justify this are there the Channel Four's figures from 2020, which was obviously a very difficult year for everyone because of the pandemic. Um, but Channel Four has bounced back really well. Um, it's making more money uh, than ever before, which it then just pumps back into its programming. Uh, the government says that they'll use the the one billion that they expect to make from the sale, which they they actually don't expect to get that anymore. Um, they'll pump that into uh, the TV industry in order to level up the TV industry and level up the sort of north of the country and to try and you know uh, reinvigorate the industry up there. But that's exactly what Channel Four does. Channel Four buys the majority of its content. From production companies that are based um, outside of London. So, if you want to level up the TV industry, Channel 4 is literally the perfect organisation in order to do that. And they say that they'll pump 1 billion in. Channel 4 makes something like 1 billion per year, which they then put into programming. So, the government says they'll put one payment of a billion into leveling up. Channel 4 does that the entire time. And obviously, so they. Almost the worst bit of this is that they have admitted that they are willing to sell it to um foreign buyers. And so the the most likely candidates are, are companies like Warner Brothers. Um and those companies are going to want to run it for a profit. Current affairs and journalism do not make a profit. They are purely, <laughs> they cost a lot of money. And, you know, and advertisers don't want to advertise next to a film about war crimes in Myanmar. So it is purely done because it is an important part of society. Like, journalism plays such an important role. And Channel 4 does some of the best investigative journalism out there. And I'm not, I don't work for them. I make films for them, but I work for lots of other people as well. I genuinely believe that they make, they do some of the best investigative journalism and by far they do some of the best foreign journalism. And right now, with everything that's going on in the world, we need strong foreign, journal- strong foreign journalism more than ever. If you sell this to someone who wants to make a profit, they will get rid of that content. And that's exactly what the government want. They want to get rid of this journalism that is interrogating them, that investigates all of the, you know, things <laughs> that they get up to. But that is, that's the role of journalism. The role of journalism is to hold power to account and if you're in government, then yes, they are going to hold you to account on your policies, on your actions, on the things that you do. It is vital to democracy. And the fact that the government are trying to—they're uh, trying to get rid of Channel Four—and there obviously there's a lot of threats to the BBC as well. So it's the independent media that they are trying to—they're um, trying to attack. They want to turn everything basically into the sort of you know tabloid media which is very like loyal to them i mean that is an assault on our democracy yeah I, I it's it it really really angers me
0: and given that 5 minutes before we started this you know at the time of recording boris johnson's just announced <laughs> he's going to resign we don't yeah. know when we don't know when it'll go etc cetera, etc cetera. do you think it will still happen
1: is um, there is there, a, is there
0: a chance it won't
1: i think there i think there's a chance that it won't happen even if boris obviously boris is now resigning but um there was a chance it wouldn't happen anyway um, because it wasn't in the manifesto. Um, so I think the Lords are more likely to put up resistance to it because they can't say that this was a, a campaign promise. And I think uh, if any of you are in Conservative areas, please write to your MP and tell them that you don't want the privatisation of Channel 4. Um, it could, you know, it has to go through Parliament and so it might not get through Parliament. Okay. Um, I think... I mean we don't know who's going to take over from from Boris. It may be someone who is um equally on the sort of more right side of the Tory party um who might try and stay on that ideological path and then continue that policy. Hopefully it is someone who is more uh pragmatic and um has a more sort of uh you know is not just concerned about their own power and um pleasing a certain part of the electorate and so they will know it it makes no business sense it makes no it is damaging to the country it is damaging to our t- tv industry it is damaging to the output that they that channel 4 will broadcast um and it is damaging to journalism anyone who is a genuine sort of political leader would know that and would hopefully um stop the sale
0: amazing not that you've got strong views on it <laughs> no that's yeah. great so we're a bit over time but um as i think you know i end this on two <laughs> two two questions yeah <laughs> and i interviewed your partner the other day charlie who said he meant to prepare on the cycle ride and not forgot
1: you know i did the same and i actually called him on the way over here and i was like shit what do i say <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um what scares you
1: what scares me is um, and this is a subject we've not even, even touched upon. What scares me is the, um, rise of authoritarianism across the world. There are now more authoritarian, uh, countries or regimes than there are democratic ones. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, it's happening everywhere and even in democracies, the, you know, leaders are becoming more authoritarian they're using the same authoritarian playbook. It is harder for me to do my job now in a lot of countries than it was even three years ago, five years ago. Um, And I'm also scared about the fact that liberal democracies, I don't think know what it is they stand for anymore, but it is, they need to work that out very soon. And they need to understand the threat that is posed to the values that we hold dear by a lot of regimes across the country uh, across the world and even ones very close to home slash at home yeah
0: (laughs) what brings you hope
1: do you think i have any based on this conversation
0: i think you do otherwise you probably give up
1: (laughs) that's true um what gives me hope i don't think i'm that hopeful about a lot of things and i think maybe that's just a um side effect of the industry I work for but I have a lot of hopes and I am willing to and keen to kind of sort of fight for those or try and ex- um, advance those as much as I can through my work amazing thank you
0: <laughs> thanks for listening for more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk or follow along on Instagram at The adventure Podcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced by Orla O'Murray. If you want to get in touch, then you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and please do leave us an honest review on iTunes as the numbers help us reach a wide audience and we're genuinely interested in the feedback.